Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, chronoskimming classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and I am so excited to bring you guys an all-new premiere Friday edition. Today, we're going to be taking a look at Avengers Volume 2 by Jason Aaron, which contains issues 7 through 12, as well as select parts of Marvel Legacy from 2017. And it was in the course of covering Avengers Volume 2 that... I realized that it was kind of important to talk about Legacy, not just because moments from Legacy are directly referenced in this volume, but more than that, it really sets up a context for where this Avengers came into play. And that's something that I think is central to why we're discussing Avengers in the first place. I talked through this segment and the previous one about how I've looked forward to covering Avengers on this show for some time. And one of the reasons for that is because the Avengers are a reflection in at least this iteration of so much of what What's going on in the Marvel Universe and how that paints a picture of how the X-Men relate to that. It's why we started covering Eternals as well, not just because Eternals, X-Men, and Avengers are going to meet up in a crossover that's never stopped us from not covering something before. When Empire was coming out, we didn't start covering Fantastic Four, but it's about understanding the bigger picture at play and how all of these pieces work together. For instance, we've never covered Thor when covering Jane Foster, and that's because in so many many ways, the narrative of Thor as it relates to the Donny Cates run, which has been what's run predominantly throughout our time on this show, covering the bigger picture of the Marvel Universe, hasn't synced up with the more Jason Aaron thread-heavy view of Valkyrie through the project by Jason Aaron and now Torin Grunbeck. So I think one of the reasons that covering Avengers now is so important is because it's really on its like 10th or 11th volume, then there's Avengers Forever, which also had its matching Infinity comic, and we're seeing so many of these threads come due in the pages of Judgment Day between the X-Men and the threads of Phoenix with Jean Grey, the Eternals, and the idea of what makes a Deviant and what role do the Celestials play. It's also of note that this isn't the first time that someone has been involved with sort of a rogue Celestial and the ways in which the Eternals and the X-Men don't always get along when they have to share space. We saw a little of this back during the Utopia era in a follow-up run of Eternals, which was sort of a response to the success of the Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. run. We saw a short-lived, I think it ran about 11 issues, uh, run of Eternals by the Knopf brothers and Daniel Acuna. And it's in this time where we also saw a rather rageful Namor come to be a member of the X-Men and in the last few years years, we've seen Namor become at times an enemy of the Avengers who are finding themselves embroiled in this war. There are so many layers and levels that the X-Men are being expanded into the Marvel Universe through. We saw it with Emma Frost being inserted into the Devil's Reign side of things, and the reasons that made it make more sense to cover some of the Electra content that was coming out and some of the Devil's Reign content that would give a little bit more understanding to what was going on. Now, one of the things 
things that the Marvel Legacy volume that we cover today also includes is a number of primer pages. And these primer pages were designed to help readers jump into characters where they are, explain where some of these teams rest in the current canon of things. And I love these primer pages. We sort of saw it happen again when the Marvel Unlimited Infinity line launched, where they had the primer pages that we covered. Initially, Nathan did a number of those. And now we're seeing it again in a new form with the Marvel Who Is pages. We've seen America Chavez, Scarlet Witch, and now Jane Foster, Thor have one. And it's clearly a way to get new readers able to catch up to what's going on right now. And it gives readers an opportunity to understand exactly what's coming out. But frequently, because they try to give these cute names without the addition of a date, it can make these pretty difficult. Something I appreciate about the Marvel Unlimited issues is they do have that date right there in the title. But for things like the primer pages, somebody picking up Marvel Legacy might not realize how much of this is essentially just completely out of date at this point. And part of that is reflective of so much of what Avengers is doing. Avengers seeks to move forward, not just the Marvel Universe, but so many major corners of the Marvel Universe with characters like Moon Knight, Ghost Rider, and more. We're seeing huge narrative changes through this title. Of course, not all of it was welcomed or appreciated quite so much. I like things about the Phoenix use in Avengers, but it is certainly not a hallmark of Jason Aaron's Phoenix for me. I think so much of that is handled better with nuance and delicacy over in the pages of his Thor, and I very much look forward to seeing how this all comes due together. But yeah, Echo was a really divisive choice for a lot of fans, even somebody like me who's a big Daredevil guy over on the Billy Club on YouTube. I talk every Daredevil story ever with my amazing co-host Tori Sheehan, and you know, even somebody who comes from a, a very echoey kind of background and loves Jason and Aaron's Phoenix mythos, I still found myself struggling a bit with some of what happened there. And by contextualizing it all and taking a look at the total story at this point, several years and 10 plus volumes in, hopefully it makes it a little bit easier for listeners who are trying to catch up as best they can when they perhaps don't have the time to read the issues, they don't have the access, or they rely on shows like podcasts to help them fill in the gaps for the material that they won't have a chance to read. So, while it does frequently seem like when you try to start a comic series, it, you know, you have to buy a thousand books for it to all really align. Otherwise, it's sort of its own thing that nothing really intersects with. That's part of why we've started covering a little bit more of the broader picture of the Marvel Universe. And the further we went, the more clear it became that Jason Aaron's Avengers was laying out a blueprint for so much of the Marvel Universe to use as a starting point. Other times, it served as a reflection. Ultimately, it would set the stage for so many titles to follow suit. For instance, the Moon Knight run, which is currently a team favorite as well as a fan favorite, got much of its base in the setup from the Khonshu arc of Avengers. We also mention in the course of this episode that Heroes Reborn, the limited series from last summer by predominantly Jason Aaron, and then a number of one-shots by brilliant minds all across the Marvel Universe, was something we originally covered in a very different form on this show. It didn't really match the format we use for the show now, and as such, the coverage also doesn't really reflect our understanding of so many of these characters. It was something we read out of our excitement to read something that seemed like a 
a sort of silly good time and having an opportunity to recover it in the course of our Avengers coverage with a keener eye and a better understanding of the story that's trying to be told is something we very much look forward to. We're going to continue to bring you these Avengers arcs one by one, run by run, volume by volume throughout the summer until we are caught up with the title as we continue through Judgment Day. Continuing to adjust to the necessary but sometimes hectic changes in publishing has led to some weeks with some really heavy content and then some weeks where it's a little bit lighter but with a little bit more balance to what's coming out on the horizon and hopefully a few more stories hitting Marvel Unlimited in the next few months we should be seeing a little bit more structure return to the coverage. We love making the show for you three times a week every week covering MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Fridays currently focusing on our deep dive into Avengers and that's exactly what you guys are listening to. As always you can check the show out on Twitter and Instagram at X is for podcast as well as at X is for podcast.com. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram and until next time enjoy this last segment keep those mutant lights lit those Krakoan gateways open. Remember you can always find room for more Avengers in an issue. It's really you're going to hear all about it. It's it's crazy. It's like there's 700 Avengers in Avengers 700 and until then we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me picking my room in the head of the dead celestial. I'm picking the brain cavity. Over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey everybody, it's Nathan, and you can find me online at DazzlerOA on Twitter and Instagram. That's Dazzler like an age of apocalypse, and you can find me out there just, you know, talking about, ooh, Stingray. Oh no, what did they do to Stingray? And I'm TK. You can find me celebrating Father. Father's Day with my brilliant handsome son Brew on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx and we hope you avenge the experience. Unlike the Avengers who don't avenge very often, they just kind of show up and create more trouble than the was originally part of the problem in the first place. Yeah, okay. You know, the three of us knocked it all out. I think we're done. We've talked about everything in this book. We're I'm kidding, obviously. This is the most packed issues of Avengers I can imagine. And those tremendous introductions, of course, tell us that we are here to continue our discussion of Jaron of Jaron Jasons. Okay. Jaron Jason. I love that. <laughs> of Jaron Jasons. Got it. Got it. I'm doing great, you guys. Of Jason Aaron's Avengers. We're gonna be taking a look at World Tour, Avengers Volume Two in the trade numbering. This consists of Avengers numbers seven through 12. These are brought to us by an incredible team of brilliant artists. We see pencils from Sarah Pacelli, David Marquez, Ed McGinnis, and Corey Smith, with inks from Sarah Pacelli, with Elisabetta Diamico, Mark Morales, Scott Hanna, and Carl Kiesel. You know, the Kiesel family, you know, being such legends at Marvel, going all the way back to, like, you know, 90s Daredevil runs that were the basis for Mark Wade's eventual run for Daredevil, which is the rumored run for the Disney Plus series. So, hey, Carl, great seeing you. We have beautiful colors from Justin Posner, David Marquez, Mar- uh, Marcio Menez, Fraser Irving, Adam Kubert, Andrea Sorrentino, Eric Arseniega, Matthew Wilson, and Giada Mar- Marchisio, as well as additional overall art provided by Fraser Irving, Adam Kubert, and Andrea Sorrentino. You know, as artists, sometimes they do a little bit of the, the penciling, ink, and color. It can be a little bit difficult to figure out where to exactly credit some people in those delineations. So Avengers number 10 just sort of chalks it off 
follow up to guest. So we also have brilliant letters from VC's Corey Pettit, who letters the whole motherfucker. And that brings us to this quote unquote bold new direction for the Avengers. And I only quote unquote it because I think the least characters seen here are the Avengers. How do you guys feel ramping into this second volume where we left off from the first? Okay, so like I was a little confused, right? So read the, you know, reading the first story, amazing BC Avengers arc a story. I was like, oh, cool. Are we going to like get a lot of the backstory of the BC Avengers? And I'm like, oh, no, it's just this one issue. So like I was a little confused because it went from one big, long, epic arc to like a Hickman X-Men anthology type series. And I was like, huh. I think my saving grace in this is having read a bunch of later issues just in background coverage for other stuff for the show and being generally aware that we're getting up into the high 50s we know we're getting at least 60 issues of this so had I been reading this at the time I think going from issue 6 to 7 7 to 8 and then you know the next couple after that I think I might have really started to feel some concern about the direction of the book and possibly overstuffing it a little bit but I think that I'm pretty used to seeing like X titles that have this many people that I know are not even going to get 12 issues and I still think do some great storytelling so here knowing that we've got a while to go they are jam packing these full of people yeah I mean bold new direction for the Avengers that it might not really be about the Avengers is great I'm I'm into it I love this Ghost Rider issue so you know hindsight is very helpful sometimes and this is a case in which having a lot more information makes it a lot easier to read this now I gotta agree with you on that like when I initially read it I was like wait hold on this doesn't make any sense but now going back and revisiting this a lot of the stuff that is touched upon in these six issues that loosely form an arc right you know it's really stuff that has been dived into deeper further in the series like if I know World War She-Hulks is coming in 40 issues I'm not as worried about the fact that I'm about to have to deal with a vampire arc no but it yeah it was like I mean like I remember us being part of the show at the time and being in fandom at the time and reading at the time and humans out there in space at the time and all of us were like what the fuck is happening to Jen in the pages of Empire and like it made watching things happen here even though that's not Aaron's book that was you know Ewing it was really hard to like see She-Hulk and now knowing that World War She-Hulk is coming I completely agree back end knowledge makes upfront a lot easier (laughs) a big part of it is it's not trusting the author or thinking that the story doesn't have it. It's not really having good expectations for what publishing is going to look like, what the delays might be like, when the publishers might decide that a book that you love that you think is going great is actually not. And though the story is clearly written for a lot more issues, it's getting capped at a place that you are not ready to say goodbye to it. That's a thing that I think we are all struggling a lot with lately. And I can definitely see moments in this book where if I was reading it at the time, I would have been cynical and frustrated and it would have made it very difficult to follow now it's really enjoyable to follow it almost gets more so like every week because still isn't getting canceled these seeds that are getting planted now you know there's room for them to really grow so the whole experience even if a lot of the storylines aren't my favorite and the writing sometimes isn't how i want to see stuff done the fact that i know that this is somebody's full creative vision getting to really spread out some is pretty gratifying and speaking of that full creative vision something that we as a team have never gotten to discuss 
Plus, which aches my little brain. You know, there's there's kind of amazing works, and I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but if you guys can think of any, I would love to hear it. There are amazing works that I feel define my understanding of the Marvel Universe of the last 15 years, and I know I'm going to be showing my my fanboy colors, but I think Mark Wade is one of the fine, fantastic, brilliant writers that's ever worked this medium, and when I think about works that reflectively make me consider my fandom, I mean, History of the Marvel Universe 1 through 6 is one of the greatest works Marvel has ever produced for my love of this industry. And I think because there are those, perhaps Marvel Legacy by Jason Aaron, which I like a lot, but, you know, it comes up here and I feel like this actually was kind of required reading for this arc. And it is kind of a gratifying piece of the bigger picture that you need to see play out. But I I don't know why it's not included in these trades. Do you guys have any other major works that you feel are like hallmarks of the bigger picture of Marvel, the way Marvel tried with Legacy? And what are your thoughts on Legacy itself? I mean, I think Legacy was a good attempt to unify, like what you're saying, have this foundational point of things going forward. To me, the biggest thing that's kind of overlooked would be Ewing's The Ultimates, because I think it really set up a lot of stuff with that team, with Galactus and stuff that was carried on further, like in Defenders and whatnot. But it may just be Al Ewing specific, and it may just be Al Ewing fanboy. So that could be the case, too. All of Hickman's work, really, over the last 15 years, with the culmination really being Secret Wars. I think Secret Wars really gave us all a chance to have a big, silly playground experience with the characters and the idea of the characters, the platonic form of the characters, and just maybe to get some stuff out of our systems through which we could kind of carry into a new era of storytelling with comics. And I think that, you know, it took a while to go from Secret Wars to where we are now, but I do think we're in a really, really good place. And I think a lot of the reason for that is because of Secret Wars. Legacy, I love books like Legacy. I love a variety style book that is planting a flag that is going to start a really long, interesting journey. This is the end of 2017 that Legacy is coming out. And this really, reading this now, seeing everything that's going on currently in continuity, including, you know, getting us up to Judgment War, I don't necessarily think every single plot beat that has occurred over the last five years was exactly planned out from Legacy. But Legacy, reading it now, I do have the distinct impression that stuff that we are seeing today has come to fruition that was announced and hinted at in Legacy. And that's rewarding to see. We, I don't think we get enough of that executed with the tightness that it has been over the last five years. You know, it was something that the example is always like Claremont did it. Claremont would pick up things five years later. And we now know that a lot of that was kind of like accidental or had a lot more to do with Louise Simonson telling him what to do than like him actually having a grand plan. But Legacy really does feel like somebody saying, I've got a vision for the future and getting to do a lot of that vision more than most people really ever get to. I think that's hard about Legacy for me is some of the moments that are featured in it that I really love the direction they were trying to go, like Jane Thor, Sam is Captain America, you know, Kamala on the Avengers. Like some of those things are really hard to read now knowing that they didn't stick 
like is permanent is hard to go back and read because I was so excited. Yeah, the seeing the new three Ironheart, yes. Sam, Captain, and Jane. I think the disappointment of the moment was muted by the fact that having read these the way I did, the last reveal to me was that that even could have been a possibility, and I already knew nothing was going to come of it. But I definitely looked at that one panel where they're like, "Should somebody say it?" and thought to myself, like, "This could have been a game changer in casting this Avengers book that just came up to use these characters instead." Yep. And you know, it's in that regard that in talking about Marvel Legacy Number One by Jason Aaron, with art by Isad Ribic and Steve McNiven, color art by Matthew Wilson, and additional work by Chris Samney, Russell Dowderman, Alex Malieve, Ed McGinnis, Stuart Eminen, and Wade Von Grawbadger, Pepe Larraz, Jim Chang, Daniel Acuna, Greg Land, and Jay Liston, Mike Diodata Jr., David Marquez, letters by VCs Corey Pettit, with covers by Joe Casada, Kevin Nolan, and Richard Eisenhoff. And we've run out of time. And we've run out of time, right? Oh my fucking God. And in talking <laughs> about this, I think you can already see the hallmarks of what makes this industry so complex to talk about sometimes. When this was coming out in 2017, Jason Aaron's Avengers had not yet started and it would be Free Comic Book Day 2018 that would get it all going, which means that there was already an Avengers coming out when this was coming out. And this book, instead of really being an exciting moment for that Avengers that we're all very clearly positive on, kind of acted instead as like, unfortunately, a death knell for whatever Avengers would have been coming out while this was coming out that we were all excited about. So again, you know, I bring it all up because you started this with hindsight makes it easier, TK. And I have to agree because at the time I did read this legacy as removing something I had just begun to love. I can see that. Yeah. I love that Avengers series that came before this one so much. It took me a while to turn around on this and even till now just to sort of like fall in love with this Aaron team. It's just so fun and bombastic. I love it. But that team before, oh, that was amazing. One of the hardest parts about this legacy for so many people is it gives you the 1 million BC Avengers, which we've already discussed, are an incredibly divisive idea. But from there, you get so much Robbie versus Starbrand. And I feel like Starbrand is the one missing thing that once it's in Aaron's Avengers, I'm like, oh, these, this is the book I know. Like, I'm going to buy these Omnis. Like, I genuinely find myself someone who began as what you might consider an Aaron apologist on this run. And now I'm like, if you don't get it, I can't help you. But then you just don't get it. It works and it's good. You just, it's not for you. And it's okay to not be for you. Like, there's nothing wrong with it being good art that isn't for someone. You know what I mean? But like, there is definitely a sense of seeing the star brand in this Marvel legacy story as this combative, angry, frustrated thing makes it a whole lot easier for me to sweep by all of the stuff that I'll be honest, I'm not here for. I'm not here for the Fantastic Four stuff. Uh, I want to bang Daddy Doctor Strange, but I'm not here for him in this book. I love all of these inclusions, but get out, get out, get out. (laughs) I mean, I think that we are seeing so much like throughout Legacy and the first 12 issues that we're talking about, we see so many attempts to give us a ton of information about the world of the Marvel Universe today. You know, they really have to deftly try and explain that S.H.I.E.L.D. is gone and Wakanda is essentially running as S.H.I.E.L.D. The subtleties of the Agent of Wakanda stuff, if the only things that you've read are these 12 issues and Legacy before that, it really takes some work to get an understanding of how the world looks and how pieces like the Fantastic Four that aren't going to be integral, they're not going to be Avengers, but at some point there's every reason to suspect that like a Galactus level threat will show up and you'll have to be like, somebody call Reed Richards 
t-shirts because he knows what to do here or like reality warpers is Franklin around so like you know even the inclusion of Wolverine in a lot of this which seems a little bit silly (laughs) (laughs) and very gay which is the best and kind of silliest part about it the job here is in part to say to movie people that are like I should check out the comics that these come from here's a lot of recognizable stuff and stuff that you've seen in the movies or heard about or know as part of the Marvel Universe and here's stuff that is distinctly Marvel Comics and we've made a perspective of this world and a team that can give you both and hopefully draw you in and I would be very curious to know if that was an intention and if there has been success because I feel like they're doing a good job. I'm so glad you brought up Wolverine because (sighs) yeah (laughs) you know I gosh I do think they do a really good job. I genuinely do. I'm not being silly. I think that the hardest part of masterminding a big book like this, a big we are the central universe book kind of global net title is you need to touch on so many things and you need to do it really organically. And having a guy like Jason Aaron, who is, you know, a Thor guy and it is his Avengers and he is a Wolverine guy, it makes a lot of sense. But man, all of the Infinity Stone Wolverine stuff didn't really work for anybody. The energy clause didn't really work for anybody. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that just didn't work around this time. It's crazy that there were like two different real Wolverine, what we were thought were real Wolverines going on at the time and then bam, one of them was a phoenix. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just again, like so much of it to me feels like if you are not a diehard reader, here's all the shit that we know you've heard about Marvel Comics. <laughs> I don't think that is a recipe for brilliant writing that stays with you and becomes a part of your you know personal canon but i do hope that a lot of people were like i see every character from the avengers movies every person that i love is on this team and there's all this cool weird stuff that i didn't know about the background on the celestial that i just know one thing about from that one movie like wow that's really cool and interesting i really hope that this did accomplish that for a number of readers because you know to continue growing and expanding the readership of the comics is sometimes for me a worthy enough cause to forgive a book that is just not going to be my thing is not going to be one that I carry around with me and say like this changed the way I view the world but if it gets another kid reading comics and finding those books for themselves that makes me super happy okay I said another kid I'm 37 fucking years old no but I mean hey, I, I, we are all kids at heart yeah it, it's about like the wonderment you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. like you're playing along with this superhero universe you're not pretending anything is more or less than it is it's as real and as important as you make it and you're in as adult or as a kid as you want to be and I really like that you said that because it reflects something that you and I had discussed at one point and I would love to bring it to the table for you to introduce here you said that you know kid you're 37 well kid I'm 36 and I still definitely use the word kid from time to time but I think part of it has to do with the escalating idea of the redisposition of age right so not to get like weird but there really was a time where when the guys writing these comics were expected to live into their late 60s and now guys are expected to live into like their early 80s and that really is another 20 years but that also means that you're not grandpa at 45 necessarily you can be dad at 45 and not that that was always true of all cultures in general but there is a central idea that age has progressed forward and thus people are reflectively living positive younger longer and as a result we're finally seeing an opportunity for comics to create a generational gap and you had pointed out something really tremendous about
about the generational gap provided by Robbie that I think is only accented by the initial story that we're talking about here involving Robbie killing in what is kind of self-defense. Yeah, I mean, my central tenet was that I think for most of comics, for most characters, your three age groups are really child, which is like straight up child going to be in danger no matter what happens. Even if they have powers, they probably can't use them. Children are children. We protect them at all costs. Teens, which teens often can have powers. They can fight. They can save the world even. They can do amazing things. We love the teens. But there's a degree to which, no, the teens are not in charge. No, the teens should not be doing anything unsupervised. The fact that they've gone through the last 24 issues totally unsupervised was a huge oversight and more about not knowing how to write a you know leader or an adult into the book than the fact that these kids clearly should not be alone. And once you age out of teens, like the 05 X-Men did, you are just an adult for the rest of your life. And some days you are a 21-year-old adult and sometimes you're Scott Summers who is clearly 45 but somehow we're still saying is 30. Okay, whatever. It's fine. You're an adult. It's adult age. Those are those are your three options. Adult mentor teens. Everybody protects children. Teens are not in charge. Teens like once in a while have to be in charge because all of the adults are comatose and it's like just this once by the skin of our teeth we did it and it should never happen again. Robbie to me represents a possible burgeoning young adult category. Robbie, I don't know what Robbie's age is intended to be. He might be 18 or 19 and so technically a teen, but he is not a young Avenger. He is not a runaway. Cap is not showing up and saying, we can't sanction you guys doing this. You need to come in for training. He is not constantly screwing up in this way that's like, I just thought I had to deal with homework. Like even when he's not Ghost Rider yet, he's like, I have to figure out how to take care of my disabled brother in East LA. Life is impossible. So he's got like adult struggles. He's young compared to the other Avengers in this book in a way that Carol literally is like, here is a database study. You need to know who these people are. Nobody is saying to him, you cannot pilot a Celestial and turn it into a Ghost Rider vehicle. But they are saying, once you have done that, you need to spend a little time getting up to our level. And I think that is an important age group to see reflected more in comics because I think it reflects, yeah, just kind of the expansion of our understanding of age and the fact that you can feel like quite a kid at 37 and you might live to be in your hundreds and so you've got a lot longer to grow and change and you know having different categories of hero and experience and age of hero I think is an important reflection of it. You know that's a good way to think of it because I hadn't thought of Robbie in terms of age like that and being like a newer like version of it like as a as a young adult category coming out. I always was thinking of him as like the Kate Pride character like the, the audience point of view character the character who's inexperienced but those do usually tend to be the teen characters i can see where you're going with that actually tk okay cool thank you kitty is like i was a child the day before and now as a teen i'm stepping into this school and that's i'm giving you that pov which we all loved we all picked that up when we were kid ish and that i mean brilliant brilliant choice to do that really good way to get young readers on now i think there's an expectation that somebody might be 19 to 40 picking up this avengers book for the first time and they want a young person they want to feel that inexperience but they aren't necessarily going to get as stoked about like a plucky 13 year old <laughs> true true thinking of age categories in that way i never thought of it once kate moved out of teen to adult like writers have been unable to really solidify like an age range she's supposed to be sometimes she acts like she's 21 sometimes she acts like she's 45 so like okay you're right like writers do tend to like treat it once you're adult you're just an adult yeah and we had the Ellis years where Kitty was clearly by everybody else's 
standards, still supposed to be a teen. And Ellis just shunted her into adulthood. And we have not been able able to pull her back, even though that was, I think, a premature adulting of a character. But we could never pull her back because she had sex with Pete Wisdom. And the only way to make that okay was to keep her an adult. Yeah. (laughs) And I want to comment, number one, on how much I love that this dissection of age is, and I'm going to say something so stupid, right? But like, hear me out. So if you love it, there's a Scooby-Doo for it. Okay. (laughs) And there's, you know, do you like regular Scooby-Doo? Like, are you a a friendly stoner with a sense of whimsy? Hey, here's Scooby-Doo. And do you like the chibification of everything? There's a pup named Scooby-Doo, or maybe that's just a red herring. And that's, if you're a pup named Scooby-Doo fan, that's like a core joke of the series. Let's just keep this moving. Okay. Okay. (laughs) We love you, Nico. (laughs) Oh God. So then if you're like a, if you're a Vincent Price fan, there is literally a 13 episode series from 1985 called The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, where Vincent Price is a member of the Scooby gang and his name is Vincent Van Gool and Daphne, Scooby, Shaggy, and Scrappy, along with a few other new friends, have to recapture 13 escaped ghosts right so like what I'm getting at here is like the wealth that you can take a brand and explore it is even when it's just something as simple as a group of stoners in a van try to solve mysteries like what a basic idea it's something that is a, a trope the central exploration of those ideas can be transposed into multiple genres can be transposed into multiple tropes and multiple iteration right so one of the things that I think that that lends itself to is that if we take a step back and we analyze these ideas of hero as tropes along age guidelines, we can say then that Robbie does represent a kitty, right? And I love that comparison. You know, well, let's call her Kate just so that, you know, we're not kid naming her, right? And then, so if Robbie is a Kate, one of the things we allow for once we know a character well enough is the super reimposition of the character into multiversal settings where we can recognize the quality of a Kate in any universe. You know what I mean? Like, that's Kate Pride when she's in another world. I think Jason, Im- I think Jason, hey, Jason, hi. <laughs> What's up, buddy? It's one of those things. The two. Either first way, names. you're saying a first name. Exactly. Oh man, I'm so sorry, Mr. Aaron, sir. Right. So you know, one of the things that Jason Aaron employs beautifully is a sense of resonance that we can kind of superimpose Robbie onto the writer. We can identify with Robbie and the writer in a sense of parallel creation in the way that we've also seen, you know, Odin and Robbie. We can kind of see where the Wendigo and Robbie in issue seven presented a possibility of companionship early in the story. So yeah, I really think your point about creating a new dimension in character where there is this other age range really translates immediately to Aaron's work in issue seven of Avengers. And I frankly would love to see it translate into a character that I mentioned, Scott Summers. I would love to see some of the older X-Men get into an age group where, you know, we say of athletes and we used to say of really any that over 35 is middle age and puts you out to pasture. Some of the fittest, most capable people we see, most gorgeous people we see today are 35 to 55. But that's a very different adulthood than 18 to 30. And it, the X-Men really are just adults or teens. So we're missing a level. And, and we see this in the Avengers too. Like Tony Stark really is should be approaching 50. And that doesn't mean he should stop superhero. It just means like the experiences and needs 
needs and storylines of a 50-year-old, of a 45-year-old thruple, Emma Frost, Scott Summers, Jean Grey, is going to be super different than whatever is going on with Generation X, who ought to be mid-20s. And those are good stories to delve into and to embrace the fact that people are different ages. We don't have to, you know, completely get rid of the sliding time scale and set everybody at a particular age and then age them from there. But we can segregate those categories a little more so that we have the ability to acknowledge the different places that people are at and where they should be at based on how long they've been in the Marvel Universe. And you're right, that comes up a lot in, say, New Mutants, right? Where they those heroes should be definitely that mid-20s, like maybe almost early 30s, like, you know, in my mind at least, kind of characters. And they sometimes get written like adults or teens. And they, they, they yeah, they need to create that new not new because it's, it's not new but they need to be able to tell those stories of that younger adult age group till about like you know from 18 to 30 like you said and like 30 to 40 there's a difference between a, how a 30 to 40 year old is going to act versus how like a 50 to 60 year old is going to act in the story but do you know who always acts the same way every fucking time Mephisto Mephisto he's here to be a black tongue snake motherfucker and this is really interesting because to segue us a little bit further into Jason Aaron's spectacular work and you know what a hallmark of an excellent writer where the conversations it leads to are so rich and so dynamic and are so filled with discussion that it's sometimes hard to get to the book itself you know it's a real compliment to a writer and an artist team when their work is so full of life and I feel like I could talk for hours about the pseudo Judeo-Christian representation of the devil as a snake yes there's so much there but it's certainly not poisoning heaven which is fascinating unless the iteration here the judeo-christian sort of symbology though i'm sure that this is if it is there it's secondary right one of the things that we see throughout a lot of fiction is where men own women it is a conquering right and if we read the wendigo playing with the writer as his prey in that regard it's an adam and eve relationship and the snake offers the temptation of the damnation of Wendigo's paradise in favor of giving balance to the two structures, leveling the playing field, which is in many ways what the apple did, though the apple leveled the playing field between the denizens of the garden and their proprietor, you know, the landlord, as it were. So I would love to get how you guys feel about Mephisto, the physical binding, the warming him, and the sort of visceral visage that that creates my big takeaway from this story and the way Mephisto is used but even though he's he's the devil right even though he's the devil he's not the biggest monster that the writer has to deal with at least not right now which is Wendigo I love how this set of Wendigo and the writer as you know like ancient enemies and also was able to like create a solid reasoning for these characters being like real legacy characters. We all know about the Curse of the Wendigo. I do love that this Wendigo, even in Wendigo form, kept a lot more of his intelligence than we normally see when Wendigos transform through cannibalism. So, like, I, it was really cool to see. I love the subtle differences in his, like, prehistoric form and how the Wendigo curse, maybe, has involved. And goddamn, that writer, his outfit is so hot. Like, holy hell, he's riding around in, like, prehistoric frost in straight-up prehistoric bondage gear. <laughs> love 
love it. So I love the prehistoric Ghost Rider. I just think it's such a great character. I'm I've become way too into Ghost Rider shit recently, and that's just not something that I was prepared to have happen in my life. But here we are. I've done it. I've you finally it. done it. I've done very it. annoyed no. and yet so happy. So I mean, I love this story. I do think this was an example of a place where that lofty goal to give us so much stuff may have slightly missed what I felt like needed to be the mark. So here's the thing: I'm a very new Ghost Rider. Reader and I'm reading modern Ghost Rider, I will occasionally get back a little bit, but I am not starting at the beginning. So one thing that I did not know, because Mephisto is not the demon name that is associated with Ghost Rider. Zarathos is the demon that is associated with Ghost Rider. But upon, so upon seeing this, my first thought was, oh, this is like a, a thing, like Mephisto showed up and not Zarathos, something's going on. And then I, of course, went back and did some Ghost Rider history. And what it is, is that Mephisto implants Zarathos in Johnny Blaze. So Mephisto is is, of course, involved from the beginning of the original Ghost Riders publication in 1972. And this is now a reference back to how far that thing where Mephisto does this goes back. And that makes perfect sense to me. But if you got into Ghost Rider because of like Kushala, for instance, you really might not ever put the name Mephisto in contact with Ghost Rider. It makes sense that, you know, another demon, he might show up as a villain, but you might not realize this origin story thing. And I think it was an interesting choice to juggle that and to do you know another version of it a prehistoric version of it this is it's the all this has happened before and will happen again I love all that at the same time when we're doing all this stuff to sort of work on narrative economy shore up the foundations get new readers in do new status quos something about this just felt like going right to Zarathos cutting out Mephisto might have made some sense I now feel even slightly different about that than I did coming on the show because of Nico's gorgeous biblical allegory and just the last thing I want to say is this fight is so bloody and hardcore and insane and then just for some reason on page 15 of the digital the right panel the woolly mammoth just looks stupidly adorable and I love his flaming oh. ass forever yeah no that this is like literally one of the most compelling visual interpretations of Ghost Rider ever this is like a little bit Mr. Snuffleupagus <laughs> a little bit Martin Ten Bones a whole lot good doggo I am completely here with that he just shoots fire out of his trunk like a good boy what a dream i think the overarching actual villain of this loose arc as it is is it's almost got to be mephisto right because there's so much of what is revealed later to have been mephisto's machinations that mephisto really has to be of issues 7 through 12 is like really the driving force of a lot of the stuff that we have no idea of yet right i agree completely i think we would find that to bounce to your point earlier, Nathan, you had said to me that you wanted to know how it went from a big epic arc to an anthology title. And I think it's exactly that. I think it's that dynamism. We're seeing the number of places Mephisto has his grubby little paws. Uh, you know, I do also want to make a weird comparison. Speaking of super beings, there is something about the Wendigo where I'm like, all right, I'm not saying bring him up. But if you said that this guy was a third brother of Romulus... <laughs> no, no, no. Because he's like some sort of cosplaying water tribe mega hottie, and I'm very attracted to him, and I hate it. So 
I just uh... honestly, I, like just that could at least make Wolverine's origin tied to something that is like iconic to Wolverine, which is his Canadian Alpha Flight identity. I actually think that would just be a really cool idea to somehow tie Wendigo into Wolverine mythology, especially because Wolverine mythology is so gross and messy and nobody wants to touch it anymore. I want to mention before we move on from this issue, especially there's one thing that like I, I've loved her so far, but I'm having a hard time distinguishing her from a Jean Grey Phoenix is the BC 1 million Avengers Lady Phoenix. Just like I, I just at this point, we haven't seen enough of her and what we do see of her. It's very like, hey, I'm Jean Grey just wearing loincloths. I think we're not getting answers to that stuff until September when Judgment Day. I think I feel like I've been having the same type of thoughts and I up through Enter the Phoenix there. There's a way in which I can see it all working out. Right. The Phoenix really throws that for a loop for me. And Phoenix song Echo and what that d- does with some historical Phoenix stuff. I think depending on what Aaron and Kieran Gillen intend to use the Phoenix for, they might be able to just have this all woven together. Or I, I worry that Phoenix song Echo might be a kind of standout doesn't quite fit with the rest of the continuity. But this was one of those things that like being on the eve of Judgment War now, I am much more okay with prehistoric Phoenix. Not just okay with, like I can see how this could go to a place where I could be really into it again. And I might even get the stuff that I want out of the Phoenix back, which is something I had entirely given up on and still enjoy what's there. It's just not all my preference, but it's feeling more like we're moving towards something a little more iconic and familiar to long-term fans. It's just taking a really long time to get there. And there are some stops along the way that are maybe confusing. It's honestly so hard to reconcile a lot of Phoenix history, especially after, you know, Morrison, they sort of said, ha all that Pharaon stuff and the Necron stuff and Excalibur, psh, that didn't happen. And then their Phoenix is really hard to reconcile with Aaron's Phoenix. So like yeah. that, that's the one thing overall that I'm kind of like, the Phoenix of it all. But yeah, for real, it's so fun. And that's one of the kind of gambits that you play when you have a writer who's so well-versed in everything Marvel. You know, it's hard to miss that there's like an X-Man or X-Identity in every single one of these issues. And I'm not even using Namor for that. But whether it's Phoenix or it's Brew or it's a number of the drop-in references he makes, there is an exceptional amount of connecting back to X-Men, Mutants, his previous runs on titles like Thor that those sort of hallmarks carry issues where I don't know that I I think I super connect with what the book is trying to do. You know, monthly, I think perhaps this would have been pretty tough. I'm glad that I picked the book up through War of Realms in trade because issues eight and nine kind of run together in a big, big way. Not that that's even necessarily a bad thing, but it is a lot of everybody's looking gorgeous. Man, I love these pinups. Namor sucks. (laughs) Well, and it is so much more about Namor sucks than what the story is. This is another place where it seems like they're doing the groundwork of saying, don't forget, we have a whole Atlantis. We have our own Aquaman. He's way hotter and way cooler and way meaner. Here's all the stuff that they do. Here's how that's tied into, you know, things like Roxxon that are bothering Thor, how it could tie in with the Avengers. It really is about telling the story of the state of the Marvel Universe right now, which is awesome. But the vehicle of doing that through these, you know, sometimes single, sometimes three, sometimes six issue arcs. Yeah, the arcs aren't always the best part of the book, like at all. I don't think any of them have been
been bad yet, but I'm definitely not really in it for whatever the story is issue to issue right now. But man, do I spend so much time pouring over like, okay, what does this Agent of Wakanda title mean? Like what, who's in charge? What does that say about American exceptionalism? There's so much cool stuff being said. It's just not necessarily the plot. When we got to the start issue nine, I was like, oh my God, Stingray. Like, holy hell, I'm so glad somebody's using Stingray again. Yay. Like one of the early Avengers issues that I was able to get through, you know, like back issues of the comic book store, probably in the 50 cent bin or something was the uh, Avengers issue where they are on, you know, like Hydra base. And, you know, it's a really weird era where like Namor's on the team and Marina's basically kind of there, you know, Stingray. And I'm like, holy hell, yes. Like, I love that issue. Like, it's so cool. And then I'm like a few pages in and I'm like, oh, no, Namor, no. I was like that. I like how that really signified the shift in tone for Namor's character. I'm going to have to look into more like right before this to see if there were other things that caused this shift. But, you know, it's got me more interested in Namor as a character than even when he was an X character. There are a lot of really spectacular like, ooh, notes like that in this issue for me. This whole series of issues. One of the things I do want to point out is I'm not sure that it's a fallacy or it's a mistake. I do not yet know how I feel about it. There is currently something going on between the Eternals and the Avengers where they feel as though the Avengers have done a disrespect to their gods, the Celestials, by living in the head of one. But I mean, like literally the Celestials give the Avengers the dead Celestial. They like literally raise it up for them. So it is of note that it does kind of feel like Aaron states that it's almost a prezi. I want it to be that the Eternals are dumb. Like the Eternals can't conceive that their gods would be like, oh, you guys are doing great stuff. Here, take this one. And they just think that the Celestials only care about them and only talk to them and they are the word of God to everybody else. So despite the fact that this absolutely did happen and the Celestial did mean it too and don't want the Eternals to like be vengeful about it, the Eternals are completely butthurt about it because they don't, they can't see any way in which the Celestials would give anyone else time. Yeah, fair. I don't necessarily think that's how it's going to pan out but i think that would be a great explanation and speaking of how things pan out i want to compliment not just jason aaron's writing but explicitly the art team on how much they are able to capture a sort of exquisite balance of underwater as space as on land as underwater they create a dynamism amongst these characters where like yeah i don't think carol really needs to breathe like a person i don't think thor really needs to breathe like a person so seeing their faces unchanged works for me seeing cap and black panther need regulatory masks to assist with their breathing works for me she hulk and ghost rider could have gone either way but i'm fine with it who cares but that this battle is so defined by its color palette and movement to indicate underwater without surrendering any of the grand scale cinematic ex- you know extremeness that this book has already become anonymous with at only eight issues in is really an excellent statement by the art team that Jason Aaron isn't the only one here to make a statement on the Avengers. I also think the choice of the underwater locale, the choice to put Avengers Mountain up north, this is a global space hopping book. And it's not just one of those books that says like, we'll take the threat anywhere, even in the water, even in Antarctica. It actually is there a lot of the time and makes you comfortable there. Again, it gives you the lay of the land with the Marvel Universe. They could be in New York City the next day. We now are seeing all these places. We're getting great views of Russia and what's going on with Russian superheroes. We are understanding more and more with each issue what the 
the Marvel Universe of present looks like from a very like ground up view. And I think it's important to be willing to invest the time and story in those locations. And, you know, the art team is making it so that these images that we have of these places will stick in our head and will become an important part of how we conceive of everything that happens. To piggyback off that, yeah, the, the globalness of this Avengers book and the way that they're using the art to signify all these different places is amazing. Like, I even love when they draw Andromeda, they draw her so well. I miss that girl. I want her to be like in everything. New Defenders rocked. But just to see her come on and Aaron even able to give her a really good reason for why she would be teaming up with Namor in it, like, you know, like they're destroying the oceans. It's we're seeing the, the world global effects of humanity on the planet and the need for superheroes to not just be focused on the U.S. Um, yeah. Well, it is in the heart of that globalism that I want to point out that the finale of this arc, 8 through 10, which again, you know, we found this true of the last arc as well. The battle sequences are given such page economy that they do sometimes take up the central amount of the issue, meaning that a lot of it is in discussing the action as it happens. And the play-by-play is so much better served by reading the incredible art by this incredible art team over hearing a detailed description of, and then She-Hulk kind of goes back, but her hair does like a flippy. And then she's got like really big thighs and these real big boobs and they're real cool. And then Ghost Rider comes in, right? So we're going to, you know, discuss (laughs) a little bit more the tenets of the story. And issue 10 gives us, okay, so fast, fast rewind back uh, a while, like a year ago, two years ago. I'm like, hey guys, we have to start covering this thing that runs in the background of a number of Weapon X titles because there's a giant bear in it. And I love (laughs) Reckless and I'm a giant bear. So then we get a giant bear here. So already Ursa Major hitting all of my points. But from there, one of the things that I have long brought to this show is a passionate love of Squadron Supreme. And I find issue 10 a bit of a challenge to digest. We have a full roster of Avengers with Robbie, Iron Man, Captain Marvel, Thor, She-Hulk, Black Panther, and Steve as Cap. Then we have additional Avengers throughout the issue, like Gorilla Man, who the heartbreak of Gorilla Man will be a thing we will talk about for a long time. Um, Director Okoye, Agent Wasp, who is a really, you know, what a terrific appearance from Janet, and I can't wait to hear all about your feelings on that, Nathan. (laughs) Then we have Loki, Odin, and Phoenix Logan. Then we have the Winter Guard with Ursa Major, Crimson Dynamo, Red Widow, Darkstar, Vanguard, Vostok, Perun, and Chernabog. Then we have the Defenders of the Deep with King Namor, Piranhas, Echidna, Andromeda, Manowar, Bloodtie, Orca, Tiger Shark, and King Crab. Additionally, we see the War Sharks as well as we're reintroduced to the idea of the complex narrative of vampires all running around. So I am... Oh, and I think we even have like, uh, we have the Gabe page here. We have Celestials here. This is the one that ends with Blade. There's so much in issue 10 that I think issue 10 needed to be like six issues. So like... When I was reading it, I thought that, but like, then I went back and I reread it again and I just, I looked at the cover and I noticed the title page and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Like literally it's legacy 700 Avengers. So like, it's kind of like, wow, Avengers are a big deal. We've got 700 issues. Let's throw the kitchen sink in in case somebody just picks this up and is like, wow, this is going to be the only Avengers I'm going to read. Like, let me see what issue 700 is like, you know? And I think in that sense, it fails because if that was somebody's entry point and they were like, 
ooh, 700 issues, let me pick this up. They're going to have no idea what's going on. I think it does a good job of setting up setting up future stories and future arcs versus what most celebration landmark issues do where they look back. You know, I'm, I'm glad we didn't get a whole big, you know, look, he's making magical duplicates of everybody's story. We're at issue 10 now. And again, I can't speculate how I would have felt reading this individually. But I feel like by issue 10, if you're reading, you're kind of in. I definitely agree this would have been a fail if you were like, I haven't been reading this, but it's issue 700. I got to pick it up. This would have been a difficult read. I am committed to just enjoying the expansion of the world. I love the idea. I want books for both the aquatic and the Russian team. Get like, give me full stories on that. What a good way to put some, you know, interesting parts of the Marvel universe that have just recently had some relevance, you know, to give them a little play. I, Russia stuff now, it did kind of, I don't know, Russia is such a weird one. I mean, America is too. I'm totally going to get away from the politics of it. No, there's a, there's an uncomfortability to discussing it. There's no question. Yeah. This is obviously years ago. It's just, it's always weird. You never, they do so much like they're talking to the boss and you don't know if you're getting a reveal later of somebody like Mikhail Rasputin or if it just ultimately is Putin and we can all agree because this is an American publishing company that we can like have him be an evil person. It's all weird, but these are great characters. This is a great team. The idea we're flirting with American midlife crisis syndrome maybe this oh, <laughs> the idea that the Avengers are like oh yeah we're not American we're we're for the world and Wakanda does a much better job of being for the world so they are the country that gets to host us and be in charge and America just having kind of no idea what to do with that feels like something we all need to be reading and I guess like circling back to the point just that there's so much happening there's so many people there is and it's maybe not the best idea to write your books like this but given that this happened I think it played out very well and while this individual issue might be a bit too jam-packed to enjoy as an individual issue as a tool that is part of the experience of this Avengers run and what that means to the whole Marvel Universe it is a very effective tool that's a really funny moment or quiet moments that I thought were like oh wow that's cool like when you're looking at page 24 of digital you've got Darkstar and Carol fighting and then the piranhas are all like inching up on this one couple and they're just in there like I guess we're gonna die let's make out and then like right after you see Namor just like punch his way out of a piranha it kind of got some really fun moments but it's so full of these moments and it doesn't maybe achieve the story it wants to achieve Uh, I do like how it set up the Red Widow who obviously we see a lot more of later on and it really kind of introduced her as a little bit of a fun badass I do love that I didn't realize this was 700 I don't know how i think it's because i thought issue 50 was 750 i don't know but i did not realize this was issue 700 so that makes the fact that it's 64 fucking pages <laughs> make a little bit more sense the fact that it's maybe written a little bit more like an a story and a b story and a c story with a little bit more linear distinction does help i think that you're right about the intimacy of the moments as well i love carol counseling thor on jen jen and t'challa so working together like I love all that 
I love nervous like schoolboy Thor. He's like, oh, could thine text thine fair maiden for me? Yeah, that's that's so them. I also think Cap coming for Thunderbolt and being like, if you try to turn the Avengers into the long arm of the American law, I will absolutely shield fuck you into the ground, old man. Are we clear? And everybody's like, hey, Thunderbolt, are you okay? And he's like, uh, he's been radicalized. Uh. <laughs> Like, all of that was the stuff where I'm like, that's my Steve. I just wish other people remembered to write Steve that way. Yeah. I think setting things up this way, at the very least, gives writers the cover to have him be like, we are not an American organization. Setting just that fact up, that's important both for a lot of plot reasons and for a lot of like character development reasons. But I feel like that's something that the primarily American audience reading this should see more often. Like, sure, these people come from America. Sure, they're based in America. But in this fictional world, other things are clearly doing better than America and we can see it on paper. It's not something we have to debate about. So those places that do it better, they get to be the ones in charge. The idea that Robbie is going to get a magical flying wheelchair from Tony Stark for Gabe is, you know, one of the hallmarks that makes Jason Aaron's treatment of the Reyes brothers so excellent. He remembers to incorporate, you know, Gabe's life in in unique ways. I want to talk for a moment about the Fraser Irving art and the Odin Ghost Rider story. There's something so exquisitely Jason Aaron about Odin and Robbie Reyes just having, you know, like a bro down. It's really one voice could do this. And I could think of other writers who may do comparable pieces, but like the Garth Ennis version of this involves somebody taking off Ghost Rider's head and pissing it it and then putting it back on and ghostwriter being like is it raining like <laughs> there is a very different version of this by anyone else i want to find this story ridiculous and kind of reject it but instead i think it's charming and i think it really belies why we give jason aaron so much leeway on this book because he gets there and he knows what he's doing it's really nice to see odin just be like so like because he's always this fierce cold hard warrior it's it's really nice to see odin have a little moment where he's like yeah you killed my friend and like I, ghost riders have always been against star brands and like you know like and just that one panel where it is page uh 37 of digital like that top panel there where odin is just sitting there you know and he looks just so sad and defeated but like it's so tender and raw and like you've got Ro- robbie reyes shirtless for some reason and looking hot as hell like you're welcome i'm like holy shit like it's like this this panel straight out of a porno but it also it all also is it shows a lot of character for Odin, which is sometimes why like this book feels more like a, an extension of Aaron's Thor because Odin gets so much characterization in Avengers, even over Thor himself, it seems like at this point. I like how for Aaron, everything is on the table. Any two characters can go out on a little date and like just have a little evening together and have a little chat because the fact of the matter is at this point, put all the names in a bag and pull out two and you can come up with a reason 
reason for two characters to have a conversation together, to spend some time together. It's a smart thing to do that, to give us an intimate moment that's kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. If we go back to that age thing, it's opposite ends of the spectrum for real. It's the kid and the insanely old god man. And, you know, ideas of incarnation come into play. Like, is he looking at a version of his friend slash enemy, the Ghost Rider? It's all just really neat and cool and funny. Fraser Irving is exactly the right person to be drawing this in particular, but it really does make me want to see this pair together a little bit more because I think perhaps the abstractness of Fraser Irving's art might pair well with Aaron's maximalist tendencies. Fraser Irving manages to do a lot of work without hacking pages the same way a lot of artists do and get the same point across. So this is a pair that I would love to see more, both Odin and Robbie and Jason Aaron and Fraser Irving. We've already given the Loki Wolverine stuff kind of as much attention as it needs for this arc, at least. Uh, I want to talk about the most unlikely pairing. You know, it's a, it's a team versus. It's a versus. It's definitely not a team up. But I never expected to see the Wasp versus like a bat. Like <laughs> that was really uh, not the not the versus battle. You know, Brandy Monica. Okay, I'm in. You know, in a different universe, Mimi Whitney. Okay, but you know, Wasp a bat. I'm like, <laughs> all right. But it plays out beautifully. The horror of this, the the macabreness of it. I'll be honest. I fucking loved the little preview of the Blade's daughter story in the free comic book day. I'm unashamedly gonna read it. So I I'm a Blade guy, not like in like a oh Blade, but like it's hard to read 70s horror without coming across Blade a lot. So I've come across Blade a bunch. He's a lot of fun. He's a great character. I like modern iterations. I think Mahershala Ali is so hot. It's stupid. And so I'm really excited about the upcoming Blade iterations. And I'd love to get your guys' take on the Wasp, you know, versus a bat. <laughs> I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I love her inclusion in the story. I do. I love the art. It's very much like Steve and I have been reading a lot more like classic EC comics stuff like lately. And it, it really is reminiscent of that art wise. So I love that. Jan versus a bat. Okay, cool. You know, like she could just full size herself in, or like maybe bigger size herself and fly or like shoot her wasp stingers. So like that part, I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, the problem I have is like, this is the first time she's appeared and she's not even, as we find out later, a full member of the Avengers. She's an agent of Wakanda. So how is she like being like, hey, Blade, welcome to the Avengers. Like, I'm just like, okay, like it's cool. I love it. I love that she was included. I, I hate that she isn't on the team, but whatever. I can't get what I want. Like I, I always, that's fine. Got little appearances here and there is great. But that part of it kind of like struck me as funny. Like, hey, Blade, welcome to the Avengers. Or would you like to join the Avengers? It's like Storm welcoming anybody back on Krakoa, whether or not she's in the book. Yeah. It's Wasp is like, hey, here's your membership card. Let me know if you want a discounted look. Have a great day. No, you stay shirtless. But let me know <laughs> if you want a hat or something. I'll do you a very hatted look. <laughs> Just like, hey, I know you're handcuffed there. <laughs> Hot. You know, you want to join the Avengers? The idea of agents of Wakanda. I love the idea that Wakanda is the superpower now. Again, I just, I think it's something that people need to see. I think it makes complete sense within the universe. I think it is good that it is being done. Maybe using Wakanda instead of doing a new acronym, like we're not doing S.H.I.E.L.D. now because S.H.I.E.L.D. has been disbanded and I think we're all a little tired of S.H.I.E.L.D. But to have done a Wakandan version and done a new acronym 
him might have maybe just given some cohesiveness to this idea that's going to pop up very explicitly stated in the next issue of like we have the Avengers the team that's out in the field but we also need ground crews and we need people that are doing the support and setup and recon work which is what Jan is doing which I do honestly think makes more sense especially when we look at who the team of Avengers currently is I think this is a great role for her my girl Ross Solomon's in the mix too agent of Wakanda there's a lot to be said for this ground crew I think it's a really smart idea and again playing into the expansiveness of what the Avengers mean and how they are taking care of the world and indeed the solar system and galaxy there are some little things that we maybe could do to tighten it up but I I like this status quo um I I would like to see this go on for a while oh yeah I would love to see this go on for a while I I wish the agents of Wakanda series had been more popular and had continued you know it was fun that spinoff that we did get obviously like I jumped at the chance to buy anything with Jan in it so I'm like oh my god Jan even if she's just for in it for five seconds but like uh, her inclusion when we get to issue 12 in the building of the team just seemed kind of like hey we got to get a long-standing Avengers member so hey let's do Jan she's not doing anything so it didn't make as much sense from her story point but I still love to see her included there were so many inclusions in these couple of issues you know and specifically that return of the celestials packed in to the end of the last issue it does start to feel as though each one of these issues is responsible for the work of more or less an era something that we mentioned earlier is that there's a sense that this run is a little bit more like an anthology than a strict arc and that might be because with the exception of legacy which was released september 27th of 2017 avengers 1 through 12 and free comic book day were all released from may 2nd to january 9th that's not a lot of time for 13 issues of content and that means that this book is sort of filling in what their appearances as a team would do in other titles instead of superfluously flooding the market with also a miniseries by jason aaron featuring these avengers we're just getting more issues and that is probably why each one of these issues is so overflowing like i can't believe there is an issue of avengers with sunfire captain britain stabra arabian knight i mean it's fine that ursa major's there nobody's crying but shaman is here like Uh, yes we are living gloriously and dining well so i love that scene that scene also there was a little bit of dialogue in it that he didn't love the route he took you know um, you're talking about even the jew and the muslim yes yes yeah (laughs) i only i i hated that too and then i realized that it's ursa major saying it and so it might just be like the piece of shit guy said it yeah. But even still, maybe maybe we edit that one out. Okay, I didn't need to see that, even even though even though it was the you know like the piece of shit Russian bear saying it. But like besides that, I did love the team. I loved the layout. That was that was my that was my only problem with that scene at whole was with that specific line of dialogue. But otherwise, I thought it was fun. It's a blast to see Ursula Major eat all of that food. <laughs> like just going to town on the berries and everything, and you know, Shaman's 
there. Like, Shaman, like, holy shit. Like, somebody chose Shaman as the representative for Canada and in Alpha Flight in general and not James Hudson. Like, it was amazing. It's more expansiveness, more characters, new characters from previous issues that we're seeing in an issue. It becomes difficult to count them all. But I love that. I continue issue to issue to just not be super invested in whatever the story is, but in what it's adding to the larger context that it's continuing to build. I definitely also had a problem with the line between uh, Sombra and Navid. I, or Sabra. I kind of, I think somebody probably needs to put Sabra away or get really serious about telling us what Marvel has to say about an Israeli character. I don't like seeing her used unless it's uh, somebody with a really, really good idea. And I've yet to see anyone have that. So she was the one where maybe I was like, I get what you're doing. This is an international situation. I'm never sure about that one. But that suit on Sunfire? Mm. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, delicious. So, you know, it was also great to see T'Challa really fucking own it and Thor be kind of fumbly. Thor be like, I verily did mean to flirt with you as well. And then Jen's like, mm, okay, I know what this needs. It needs my big green ass. I'm there. I love the balance of it. You know, this book really is getting a really good follow through on its swing that is elevating the contents of the book on a regular basis. And it is the exquisiteness of those character moments. What doesn't hit for me is I don't get this Coulson. I didn't get him when I loved Heroes Reborn. Not that I loved him in Heroes Reborn so much, but I don't get this Coulson. Like, yeah, I know Mephisto resurrected him, but there's nothing of the old Coulson really in it. Aaron's Coulson is a little bit too cartoonish villain for me, which sometimes really works for me. But this is just too far, I think, of a stretch. And there's nothing like even in those cartoonish villains there's always something that's a little redeeming or a little endearing or a little charming and i haven't found that in this version of colson at all i mean my expectation and this is one storyline where i really don't know where it goes in what's there or where it could be going in future stuff but my expectation is this will be one where when the demon is purged he'll be an entirely different person and maybe not even remember or maybe they'll do the whole like i do remember and i feel responsible and people will be like but you weren't you were possessed if it is that it's a story we've seen well trodden before but at least it saves the character if it's not that yeah this is a rough go for the character and I would either probably want to see him retired for a while or like shoved into a book that is so high profile for him that we just kind of forget about this misstep in characterization oh my god Nico we have to recover (laughs) Heroes Reform with TK because I really want to see what TK is going to think about that yeah I actually I kind of came to that conclusion earlier today too I was like going through this i was like yeah i mentioned that we're gonna have a debate about it last week but the decision was made i have to hear the snark so like i'm i'm really excited yeah and i to bring it back to tk and really excited brew is a character for me like my husband was like consoling me when brew was temporarily incapacitated back in the pages of wolverine and the x-men i love this character he has always been uh a shining moment in the X-Men for so many of us, not just for me. I mean, I'm, I'm personalizing it because I love him, but like Brew is a character that most X-Fans can agree represents all of the best things about the hope and promise of what the X-Men mean to us. And Black Panther, a god of men, and his respect for Brew is why he is a god of men. And Brew in his little suit, and I just, I love him. He's the sweetest He's little angel bug man. I love him very much. He's going to do a great job. 
I love that Brew, who is not an X-Men mutant, you know, who's not a human mutant, who is a mutant of his own species, but it's slightly different. I love when those characters get helped by the X-Men and then go off and do their own thing. I'm so happy to see him in Avengers because it means that he has grown from his time with the mutants, has become somebody that doesn't feel like he needs to necessarily hunker down with the others, but is going to go out and brew the world. I love that that conversation gave me probably one of my favorite lines of dialogue in the whole story that we've read so far. You came highly recommended by both Tony Stark and Kitty Pride, two people who I've never known to agree on much of anything. Like, just, I don't know why that's perfection to me. Like, I love that characterization of how Brew is so amazing that he could get these two people who probably low-key hate each other, you know, um, to both agree on him as a great candidate. And from low-key hate to low-key <laughs> hate, I gotta bring up Odin showing up, looking like an extra in Sweet Tooth. I love <laughs> the antlers so much. Get me some Jeff Lemire on here. Big, big, big Jeff Lemire fan, so gotta just bring him up where I can. And the number of characters that wind up appearing throughout the end of this book, whether it's Ross Solomon, Fat Cobra, Dr. Nemesis, American Eagle, Kazar, we are overflowing with incredible characters. And one of the things that that does lead to is a little bit of brand confusion for me at times, such that when they not waste but use page space at the end of this issue to introduce the next arc, when this one didn't even really feel like an arc, I do find myself maybe a little scratching my head. Fair. This issue it just seemed to like bombastically throw agents of Wakanda at us. Like we're like, oh, Kazar, like holy hell! And I, it wasn't until I read this that I realized how like radically amazing uh, Zach Thompson's version of Kazar is because like really changed how the character like reacts and you know responds in the environment. So like I was like, holy hell! It's just throwing people at us after Odin. It's just like here's American Eagle, here's Doctor Nemesis, here's Fat Cobra. Like, like, what? Why? Why? And then, like you said, Nico, it's very much like, haha, now we're going up against the vampires. Yeah, at this point, I'm not gonna really even be noting the absurd number of characters that are in the book. The fact that it's not clear if they're being brought on to be Avengers, if they're just like guest stars, if they're literally just on a panel because there's no way they couldn't be there. That's this book's MO. It's, we are a year, well, actually, it's half a year because they move so quickly, but we're we're deep into this book and it just keeps doing it. Again, it's maybe not the best idea, but it manages to not weigh things down so poorly that people weren't interested in buying 60 of these. So I kind of have to believe that like, even if it's not how I would say you ought to do things, even if there are times where I feel like, you know, if Jason Aaron came up to me and was like, okay, but what did you think about the story in issue 12? I would say, I have no idea what the story is, but let me tell you, I am super duper stoked to see Jack Jameson in space turning into a wolf and helping to fight vampires. That's really fun and cool that's what i'm here for sometimes that's enough at this point i'm reading so many books that like i get my perfectly tightly plotted few characters just focus decompressed books in other places and that's okay i think the avengers has sometimes been that book i think a lot of these characters end up being in solo or smaller titles that are that book this one really might as well be a fireworks show at all times you know i think it's like why i love this is why i used to love those old you know uh dc comics J. JSA, JLA crossover events where they're like, aha, it's Earth 1 and Earth 2, and you're like, you've got all the Justice League, and then you've got, like, the Justice Society and the All-Star Squadron and Infinity Inc. all crossing over. It's huge. It's bombastic. Everybody gets a few moments here or there. Like, you know, it's it's 
it's great. It's fan service and it's fun. It's just, it's fun. Like it, it's not necessarily the comic I'm going to read. If I want to read something serious, I'll go back and reread Eternals. I'll read Immortal X-Men. I'll read anything by Al Ewing. But like, if I'm just in the mood for something light and fun, if I'm like, you know, I'm really stoned. I had a hard day at work. Let me read something fun. I'll probably pick up an Avengers now and just be like, holy hell, mile a minute. Yeah, I really do think it reads a lot like an animated series. Like it's got yes. big time fun cartoon vibes in all the ways that matter. And I, for one, am excited to continue covering these titles uh, as the book continues to grow. One of the things that I'm eager to see is how many of these issues read even better because we know where it's going and that can provide us so much insight into the story itself. So my question for you guys is, do you have any final thoughts on this, the second volume of Avengers, which normally at 12 issues would be like constitutes a year, but this was seven months. That fact just is so hard to remember when we weren't dealing with constant paper shortages and like we didn't get six issues a year. We got like 24 if we were lucky. Like that's just, that's crazy. I I, I can't wait to revisit this with these new eyes I have where I'm not sitting there questioning every decision because I've, I've seen a lot of the, the first full 50, 55 issues so far. You know, like I've read up on a lot of them. I missed a few in the middle, but you know, what I came back to really paid off on the promise they're setting up right. Yeah, it's fun. It's just, it's just good, pure fun. I'm loving it. Yeah, I appreciate this more and more each time I come back to it. And as we get closer to Judgment Day, I do feel like that is going to bookend the stuff that we're reading here. And I do think they have done some really quality work setting up big ideas and paying them off and hopefully giving us, I think, a status quo that we, I mean, there's always changes, but this one could be a really solid base to go forward from for a lot of writers and for readers too. I think that you guys really nailed my feelings really clearly. If I had anything to add, it's perhaps I hope to see the legacy of this title thought of with perhaps a little bit more reverence than we've initially seen this book afforded. Certainly not stating that anybody has to like anything, but as we mentioned last episode, it does sometimes feel as though perhaps there is a predilection within fandom to be harshest of event books and this Avengers is at all times an event book. So I, I just hope that the legacy of this title is kinder than the last few years have been to it as it moves into its likely golden years. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, it's how often lately does Marvel let a series run into its 50s, right? Like, I really, besides Avengers, can't think of one going on right now, and I might be blinking. But, like, except for going back and legacy numbering everything, Marvel has really rebooted most series after one or two years after 12 or 24 issues so like for Marvel to have the faith in this Avengers to let it go up to like at least probably going to go into the 60s hopefully they give it 100 issues you know I, this, I can see it going that long it's like this right now it's the second longest running Aaron is the second longest running run on Avengers if there aren't enough people who liked it it wouldn't have gone that long I know a lot of fandom has some problems with like you know his use of the Phoenix Force or etc etc but I, I think overall all it's just it's been really fun it's really been bombastic like if if you if you're on the fence as to whether you'd like it or not and you got marvel unlimited go pick up the first uh, go read the first arc go read the first up to issue 12 right now and you know see how you feel about it just know that if you read issues 7 through 12 a lot of it is going to be later on so stuff that doesn't feel important now is really going to become important yeah 
I, I would echo those sentiments. If you are like an MCU person or you are an X-Men person that doesn't really do Avengers stuff, starting with Legacy and then going into this Avengers run, especially if you've got Unlimited, this will give you a really clear picture of the entire Marvel Universe. Again, it's a giant fireworks show. Sometimes it's really loud and annoying. Sometimes there are parts that you do not know what's going on and you don't really care about. But it's beautiful. It's fun. It's a night out. And on top of that, there's this whole other layer of like this being the primary mover of one of the biggest events Marvel's done in a really long time in Judgment War. And, you know, especially if you're a fan of other corners of the Marvel Universe, but don't do Avenger stuff to pick this up over the next few weeks as Judgment War starts, you will appreciate, I think, a lot of the references that are going to be coming up in that. And it will give you a really good jumping off point if you want to get into any other fandom that, you know, like if you want to get into Doctor Strange stuff, if you want to get into Iron Man, if you want to get into Daredevil, there's inroads to all of that stuff through this Avengers. Avengers. 